at Romans chapter 11. We were uh, tonight going to be looking at Romans 11, but 9, 10, 11 are pretty dense when it comes to material, and it takes a while to absorb the material. So instead of running over this material very, very quickly and, and, and cramming it all in, I mean, sometimes... I've been doing this for 30 years, professionally and academically, the study of God's Word, and sometimes it just seems like you're swallowing a car, you know, when it comes to the amount of information. And so what we'll do is we're going to swing Romans 11 to next Sunday night. And that is the culmination of that first section of the book of Romans and what it is that Paul is talking about when it comes to God, His faithfulness, His righteousness as expressed through Christ Jesus, and what it means to be the church and what it means to be Israel. And so we're going to be talking about that, Romans chapter 11, next Sunday night. What we're going to talk about tonight deals with Revelation chapter 2, which is the letter to the church of Ephesus that I know many of you are familiar with. We're going to, uh, to consider some of the things that God says to the church through Christ and the angel in John, even to a church 2,000 years removed like the MacArthur Park Church of Christ. So we are going to begin with the words of uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 after we pray together. Now, does everybody have an outline? Are we good? All right, that's bow our head and join our hearts, and let's ask God to bless us. Father, the book of Revelation to, to so many people is a mystery. To other people, it's frightening, and yet to other people, it is a great book of encouragement and of hope and of a spectacular vision of Your power and Your sovereignty in the world, not just in the first century, but how You will bring all of history to a conclusion as You renew, Father, the, the, uh, the heavens and the, the new earth and the new heavens, and You will bring all of Your people into Your presence. And we who are faithful will be victorious, and all evil will be judged, and death will be thrown into the lake of fire. And we will find ourselves forever and ever in Your glorious presence. And so tonight, Father, as we study these words to the church that was written to Ephesus 2,000 years ago, we're asking You to give us eyes that see it and ears that hear it. For we want oh so much to discern these words and to live them out, the implications and the ramifications in all that we do in this city and in this world, in this age. And so to this end, Father, we pray for Your help and we ask it in Jesus' name. And all the church said, the book of Revelation, the letter we know as the Apocalypse or Revelation, begins with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now, in this, this first passage or this first text, there are five beings who are involved in the giving of this revelation. God is the one that authored it. He has given it to Christ, who used an angel to communicate it to John the Apostle, who was on the island of Patmos, who wrote it down for the church to read. Now, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, this is the, the New Century Version, the one who reads the words of God's message is what? Blessed. And the people who hear this message... And what? Do what is written in it are blessed. The Word says that there is a blessing that comes from hearing the message, and there is a blessing that comes when you do what the message says. You have to hear and do the message according to John. James, the brother of Jesus, says the same thing. James chapter 1, verse 22, Do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourselves. 
do what it says. Say those last four words together. Do what it says. Now, a little background on Revelation. This, this letter, this, this unveiling, was uh, written probably towards the end of the first century. Uh, generally, roughly speaking, about 95 A.D., John the Apostle, the beloved disciple, the Apostle of Jesus, is on the island of Patmos in exile. He is at the end of that first century. He is a senior adult, and he is on a big rock and a big piece of water. The Emperor Domitian is ruling Rome, and he's ruling the world. And what John is experiencing in exile on this, this little island off the, uh, off the coast of Asia Minor is just, in a manner of speaking, it's just a love tap compared to what Christians are going to be experiencing in the years to come. There will not just be persecution. There will be periods of persecution all the way to the time of Constantine. And John is on the island of Patmos. Now, you know, in our imagination, we, we, we need to work through this. John has spent three years of his life following the Christ in person. He is the one that, uh, that has this special relationship with Jesus. He is the one that at that Last Supper is laying on, uh, in, in, in Jesus' chest. He is, he is the one that, that has this very special relationship with Jesus. They are close. And yet, John on this island of Patmos, all of these years later, is going to see a different Jesus than the one he remembered seeing six decades prior. That's the one that shows up. And he shows up in all of this heavenly splendor and this glory. And it nearly frightens John the disciple to death. But John gathers himself up and, and, John, and Jesus tells him to write down this message. It's really a letter of sorts. One for each of the churches in Asia Minor, seven letters in all, and to send these, this, these letters to these seven churches. And all of these churches, again, are in Asia Minor, the modern-day country of Turkey. The interesting thing about chapters 2 and 3 is that they are, in a manner of speaking, a progress report. Now, it's been a long time since I've been, I've been in school. But I can remember the days where before you got your report card, about halfway through the semester or halfway through the quarter, you would get a progress report. And it was something that, like a report card, you either wanted to show it to your parents because it was good or you wanted to hide it and hope that they didn't think about it and wouldn't ask you about it. But the progress report came out before the report card. And in an interesting, sort of curious way, that's what these letters to these seven churches are like. Before there is a final grading, before there is this, this gigantic test, Jesus is giving them a progress report on how they're doing. Now, the first letter is to Ephesus. Ephesus was a major, major city in the world at the time that this letter was being written. Paul, as you know, had planted a church there. He had spent three years of his life getting the, the church mature and standing on its own without it. But after leaving that church, he wrote back to them these words. And they're, they're very uplifting. It's kind of an upbeat statement. He says in verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians 1, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Now again, this is a very upbeat statement on the church in Ephesus a couple of decades before Jesus sends them this progress report. And in the text from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, there is good news and bad news on that progress report. This is what it says. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That is God's Word. Now let's consider the good news and the bad news in this letter. Number one, they are working hard as a church. They are working hard. In fact, as a church, they are working themselves to the bone. They are a worker bee kind of a church, always involved in ministry, always doing the right kinds of things. They're doing good deeds. The church in Ephesus knows how to get good things done. And they're not, get this, they, they are diligent and they are, are persevering in, in what they do. They're not discouraged easily when things begin to get a little tough or there's some pushback. They keep going. They know how to endure. They know how to, how to persevere. They're not discouraged. They work hard. Number two, it's a good thing. They're guarding their purity. Not only are they working hard, but they're guarding their purity. They have a high respect for God's Word. A high desire to do it. They know the Word of God well enough that when prophets or preachers or apostles come along, they know how to tell the difference between a good one and a false one. They also know enough about God's Word to hate the immoral acts of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus Himself hated as well. This is a church that understands doctrine and its importance, and they understand how to guard that. Number three, it's also good, they are handling the hard times. Now, you know as well as I do, if, if you've spent any time with the church and really been involved in church life, you know that there are times when churches go through tough times. This one did too. And guess what? It didn't fall apart. Opposition from the very beginning in Acts chapter 19 when Paul established the church on his third missionary journey, it was just a part of their, their, their legacy. All those conversions to Jesus, as you remember, had taken away business from the idol makers. It had caused this gigantic riot. And that was not the last time that the church faced some difficult times, but each time they held it together. But it's right here that the progress report turns south. Verse 4, you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. What Jesus is saying to this church who has done all of these great things and, and, and they're persevering and they're guarding their purity and they're working hard and they're handling the hard times and all of this is that it is possible to go through the right motions of church without the right emotions. That's where you do everything by, by, by sort of this perfunctory spirit. It, it, it's going through the motions of, of worship without the right emotions of worship. It's trying to serve people in the church because it's the right thing to do and not because you have the right emotions. I don't think the problem with this church is that it is doctrinally corrupt or lazy or cowardly. 
The problem, as Jesus sees it and reports it to the angel who reports it to John, who reports it to the church in Ephesus, is this. They have lost their passion for community. Now, we can see this sort of thing happening in everyday life according to the first law of thermodynamics. Now, altogether, let's repeat the first law of the thermodynamics. Well, in essence, the first law, and there are four of them, actually, it's really kind of interesting, the, the law of thermodynamics. There are four of them, but it begins with zero. The zero law, the first law, the second law, the third law. We're going to talk about that first law in essence, it's where energy dissipates as it passes from one place to another. And it just, you know, things are kind of winding down a little bit energy-wise. That's why perpetual motion machines are, are impossible. Now, that's the kind of thing that can happen to a church as well. When it comes to its spiritual fervor and, it, and its emotional life, its, spiritually, uh, its spiritual-emotional life. The point is that Christians who do not recharge their spiritual faculties lose their passion and will grow stagnant. God is not happy. Now, God is happy with their work ethic. But God is not happy with just a religious church ethic. If we think about marriage, for instance... When we're first married, there's, a, there's this incredible degree of passion and fire in the relationship. But after a bit of time, it is very possible, not always true, but it's very possible that from time to time in certain relationships, a relationship can grow stale, although it still goes through the motions of marriage. People go to work. People pay the bills. They cook supper. They raise their kids. They go to soccer games, etc., etc., but then one or maybe even both of the, the, the spouses in that relationship have an epiphany one day. They wake up and they realize that they've lost that loving feeling. The spark has gone out of that relationship. That, that, that sense of emotional intimacy has diminished. It's become stale. The passion has dissipated. And the next thing you know, you have a relationship in trouble. Now, getting back to the church in Ephesus. The problem is not faithfulness, but lovelessness. They have religious action. They have religious duty. They have religious activity. They have religious ministry and religious work. But somehow it's not loving. Now, here's the, the question. What does it mean in this progress report that Jesus has given the church in Ephesus? What does it mean that they have lost the love that they had at first? Now, a, a, a lot of times people think that this is their love for Christ. But notice that this negative comes immediately after telling them all of the great persevering and enduring of hardships that they have done for the name of Christ. These are people that are dedicated to the Christ. These are people that, that are completely committed to enduring hardships and persevering during the turmoil and the trouble and when the world is getting shaken for the Christ. So what is it? Well, let's back out of Revelation chapter 2 for a second and think about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter of love. Think about the scope of all of the things that Paul writes about at the very beginning of that chapter. He talks about speaking in the tongues of men and angels. He talks about the gift of prophecy, of fathoming all mysteries and all knowledge. Faith to move what? Mountains. About giving away all possessions to the poor. Giving bodies over to hardships. 
But what does he say in verse 3? But if I do not have love, three words, I gain nothing. And then in verse 13, these three remain faith, hope, and love. But what is the greatest? What is the greatest? What is the greatest? Love. Love. But here's the question. I mean, it's pretty easy to understand what Paul is saying. Verse 13, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? What's love got to do with it? Why not hope or why not faith? The reason I think love is the greatest is because it is the word of relationship. It is the word that creates relationships and maintains relationships. Love is what binds people together in service and support and in intimacy through thick and thin. The church in Ephesus had a past with less than ideal spiritual community with each other. You'll remember, if you go back to the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul speaks to them of their experience of God's love for them seven times in the first three chapters. You know God's love. You know the love He has for you. God's love, God's love, God's love, God's love. And then chapter 4, as Paul begins, the first three chapters are those chapters on, on theology and, and the greatness of the Gospel. Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 is about how to live out the implications and the ramifications of that, that, that doctrine and that theology. And chapter 4 begins with, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in Love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself. It gets strong. It gets mature. It gets muscular. It gets active. It gets vibrant and intimate. It builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now therein lies the problem. They have lost their passion for each other. And having a second to none passion for Jesus makes them a church worth persecuting. You know, that's just part of what it means to live in a world that has fallen, to live in a world where there is still light versus darkness and darkness versus light. This is what it means to live in an era where Satan, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, is still like a lion prowling around and growling and looking for somebody to devour. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 6, you've got to put on that, 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 that spiritual armor, the armor of God. Having a second to none passion for Jesus and their faith and ministry and, and being evangelistic and being not just faithful but fruitful in that community of Ephesus makes them a church worth persecuting. They're getting noticed. They're in a big city. What they do is seen in the empire. What they do is seen by the magistrates and all of the leaders of the city. What they do has ramifications for the business community. Having a second and unpassion for Jesus makes them a church that is worth persecuting. But having lost their loving affection and community for each other makes them vulnerable to succumbing to the coming troubles. You think about the, the nature of persecution. 
what is what is one of the hardest things to to do when when some kind of persecution, some kind of trouble comes your way, it's to face it alone. It's to face it alone. Could, could you imagine going through something in your life that is so terrible that you can't sleep at night, you can't eat during the day, all your thoughts are, are, are perplexed, you, you feel anxiety, there is suffering in your heart, there is turmoil in your soul, and, and you, you can't think about anything else but that. And to know that nobody's praying for you. Or that nobody is sending you a pink card. That nobody sees you and what it is that you're going through. That nobody is there to offer you an encouraging word. That there's nobody there that is standing beside you. That there's nobody that is helping you through wisdom and encouragement and prayers and love and, and service and ministry and wisdom to go through that that, that path that goes right through the middle of that storm. And that is just something that every church that is doing the work of Jesus, that, that persecution, it makes them worthy of that. It makes them a church in the eyes of darkness, a church worth persecuting. And in the coming episodes and, 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 and periods of persecution in which people are going to be dying for their faith, and they're wondering, you know, who is really the Caesar? The guy that sits on that throne in Rome or the, or the one that sits on the throne in heaven? There's going to be doubts that are going to assail their hearts like, like, like arrows against a fortress. And to do it alone is to put not only themselves, but the entire church, the body of Christ, the beautiful bride, at risk and at danger. having lost their loving affection for each other, makes them vulnerable to succumbing to the coming trouble. We had an interesting question in Bible class this morning about the gift of faith. Why is it that God gives some the gift of faith and you know, not to everybody? Well, I, I think in, in the context of Romans chapter 12, the, the, it's not a saving faith that is being talked about. It is a faith that inspires people and causes people to aspire to greater uh, connectedness and greater diligence in their connectedness to God. And, and, you know, every once in a while we just see somebody in our life that shows us what is possible by God's Word and by God's Spirit and by God's presence in our life. And we are inspired to follow in their footsteps and know that we can take our own faith and our own discipleship to the next level. That's, that's what the church needs from time to time, is people who will stand and say, by God, we will not back up to darkness. Regardless of what happens, we will be godly and loving and merciful and compassionate, but we will be strong in our faith, regardless of what comes. Every church needs that. And I think that God gives certain individuals in every body of believers, there's always somebody who stands up and says, by God, it will be by His strength, by His presence, this way. And so Jesus gets them back on track. And He gives them three things that they need to do to boost their grade. And they do need to boost 
their grade. Because he does say that if you do not do this, I will take away your lampstand, which means that they will cease to be a a church, that they will cease to be a body of believers that have the blessing of God on them. Which is incredibly frightening when you think about the possibility of being people who are called together in Christ but do not love each other and somehow are not, because they are not a loving church, are not blessed by God. And so to get back on track, the Christ calls the church to remember. Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Remember the way it used to be. Remember what it was like when you walked in love. Remember what it was like when the body just was building itself and getting more muscular and strong. It was strenuous in its activity and successful in fruitfulness in its activity because it was building itself up in love. Remember, remember how you hung together when all of those idol makers tried to strike against the church and in our loving one another and the intimacy and the support and the prayers and the ministry to each other and the examples of faith, the church survived and thrived. He says, remember. Remember. Remember what it means to be a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth and to be transformed into His image, to walk as He walked, what it means in your relationships. And then number two, repent. Get it together. Make a decision to go in the direction of Jesus. And then repeat. Do the things you did at first. You you know... I, I think that love is is one of the greatest blessings a person can ever experience. It is. To know that somebody chooses you. To know that somebody is there even when you're wrong. Even when you're wrong. Even when you've made a mistake and everybody sees it and everybody knows it and there's no use denying it or arguing about it. You were wrong. And yet they choose to love you. Choose to love you. That is a tremendous blessing to know that you have relationships where you know without a shadow of a doubt that there were people who would, who would die for you. That is a blessing. It's one of the greatest blessings in the church, but you know what is one of the hardest things in the church to do? It's to love. It's to love. You know, sometimes, you know, it's easy to love because we're loving somebody that can give us the love back. You know, we're loving somebody that can return the favor. We're loving somebody that, you know, we're getting something in return. What about those times when you have to love and there's nothing that's coming back to you? When Jesus said, you know, when you love somebody that loves you back, what more are you doing than the publicans, the tax collectors and, 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 and the pagans? That's pagan love. They, they get the idea of investment and return. Kingdom love is to love somebody who's not exactly easy to love. Jesus will even say, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. It's one of the hardest things in the world to do is to love. The way that Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the way that, that, that Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, and especially 4 and 5. It's, it's incredibly difficult when you've gotten off track to get back on track the way that the Christ tells the church in Ephesus to do it. And yet He does not leave us without an example. 
one of the, one of the most moving scenes in the entire Bible is when Jesus is at the point where they are nailing him to the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. The giving of love, the request for mercy, showing compassion at people who are driving, human beings who are driving nails into your arms and your feet. And yet, in that kind of love, the most awesome, incredible gift that humans have ever known was wrought. And that is the gift, the gift of being reunited with God, not just in knowledge, but as a child. When we think about Romans chapter 8, that spirit is reminding us that God pours into our heart that's, that is a, a testifying that we're the children of God, that we say, Abba, Father. The spirit is not just working in our mind, but working in our heart and giving us an experience of the love of God as a father. That even when we fall short of the glory of God and even when we stumble and even when we do those things that, that are not you know, the activity or the, the things that disciples do, what is it that Paul says? There's nothing that separates you from the love of God. And it's that love that binds us to Him that becomes the glue that binds us together regardless of what comes, regardless of what levels of maturity that we might have in Christ. It is the glue that binds us together and keeps us a beautiful body of Christ, regardless of what happens on the outside or the inside. And the experience of that love begins with saying, I know that you love me. And I want to love you, Father. It's not that we first loved Him, but that He first loved us. And I know, at least in my head at this point, that my life is out of sorts and I know that the only way to get it back on track is to come into your love and to come into your compassion, your mercy and your grace and all of your blessings by giving up my own life through repentance, changing direction, through confession, of acknowledging that Jesus is sovereign, having all of those sins washed away through baptism and the Spirit poured into my life and becoming a part of the body of Christ. And each day, step by step, as Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, each day by God's Spirit being transformed into the image, by degrees, into the image of Jesus. If that describes you this morning, maybe you've never made a decision to enter into the love of God that way we would give you that opportunity tonight. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If you would like to do that tonight, then come down and speak to our shepherds as we stand and praise God for the love that He has shown us.